Father, we just come to you, Lord. We just thank you, Father. We just thank you for thank you. Thank you, Lord, bringing us safely. In your house this evening, your children have come from far. We just sit at your feet. Help us to be still in your presence, that we might hear your voice. We may hear what you have to tell us, that we may be taught of you, Lord. Just surrender, Lord, ourselves into thy hands. We put aside everything else. Help us to stay focused. Speak, Father. For the entrance of your word brings light. We are living in the age of darkness. The word says when darkness covers the earth, your light will come upon your people. We want that, Lord. We want you to speak to us. Even tonight, speak to us, teach us. Come, Lord Jesus, sup with us. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen. We'll stop. We'll continue from where we stopped on Sunday. See, scripture says, as we see the day approaching, the day of the Lord approaching, the writer of Hebrews warns the church, do not stop gathering. Gather more and more and more. Because that itself is a sign that we believe that his, his coming is close. Do not be caught the way the children of Israel were caught in the desert. They experienced everything. They had the word, they had the spirit, they had the miracles, but it only worked outwardly. The bodies were firm, none was weak, none was ill among them. Their clothes did not wear off, their sandals did not wear off. They walked for 40 years. God protected them from their enemies, provided for them every day. They worshipped during their victories. But scripture actually says inside their souls were wasting away. Souls were wasting away. So we have to be very, very, very sure that we are not wasting away in our souls. That our outward prosperity means nothing if we are wasting in our souls. So it, watch, watch your soul. Are we really prospering in our soul? Because in the letter to Thessalonians, Paul will say that before the Antichrist comes, there will be a great falling away from the faith. This is not talking about the world. This is talking about the people in the church. Those who actually believe will fall away. And scripture says, God will hand them over to this delusion because of one reason, they did not receive the love of truth. Okay, that's why we saw on Sunday, Jesus comes full of grace and full of truth. That's what we learned. The very word, word of God, God who was the word became flesh and dwelt among us. How did he dwell among us? Full of grace and full of truth. Now we reverse the process. We are flesh. And we were born again by the word and the spirit. And the prosperity of the soul is that we grow in the word 
and we are full of truth and full of grace. It's a continuous process. So we turn first to Galatians chapter 5 and it's intense study today. Okay, little ones, keep listening. One day you will understand. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Okay, this is what we are called to. This is where Israel failed. They experienced all the miracles of God, but they walked in the flesh. Therefore, their soul wasted away. While we are called to live in the spirit. If you live in the spirit, scripture says, then we walk in the spirit. We do not walk in the flesh. So the question is, how do I walk in the spirit? How do I do that? What do I need to walk in the spirit, to live in the spirit? In John chapter 6 and verse 63, Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit. The word of God is spirit. The word of God, unlike the word of man, is spirit. The word of God is spirit. The spirit only receives the word of God. Do not receive the word of God in the flesh. That's what we saw on Sunday. That Paul says, we don't even want to know Jesus in the flesh anymore. When we are born again, we are born again in the spirit. Everything has changed. There's an entire complete reversal of how we look at life, how we look at the world, how we read circumstances, everything. It is no longer the same. In the old covenant, what blessing meant is no longer what it means in the new covenant because we are spiritual beings first. So scripture will say he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus in the high places. Every spiritual blessing. That's what we want to appropriate and become. And we saw on Sunday, the first is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, And we don't see in the natural, in the flesh, nobody sees it as being blessed. Nobody sees it. Okay, So learn to see. How do we live in the spirit? How do we walk in the spirit? We learn from Jesus and we learn from the apostles. So we see this pattern emerging. How did they walk in the spirit? How did they live in the spirit? And you will see there were two things, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, the men of God, okay, or the women of God. You will see their lives were defined by two aspects. One was the word of God and the other was prayer. Both feeds into each other. The word of God will empower your prayer and prayer will empower the word in your life. They work together. You cannot have one without the other. It still will not work. So we will see they received power on the day of Pentecost. But the question is, how did they grow in that power and how did they maintain that lifestyle of walking and living in the spirit. We'll see there is a situation in the in the early church. And we will see the apostles response to that. In their response we will see the pattern again. In Acts 6.4 the apostles are very clear. We will not be distracted by the issues of life. We will not get distracted. Every one of us will have issues in our life. But we should not get distracted by that. They say, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Their lives are defined by two things. That is, one is prayer and one is the word of God. And all of us, 
ultimately, we need to realize these are two sacred areas of our life which will ultimately determine our destiny. When God looks at us and how we see ourselves when you look in the mirror or when somebody you look at somebody else is completely different. When God looks at you or me, First Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 23 will say, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole, this is the order in which God sees, God is spirit. So when God is looking at all of us, he does not see the way I see you. When I look at you, I see your body first. And then I look at your eyes being a classroom teacher a long time ago, and I know who is not listening. Okay, that's the eyes are the mirror of your soul. Okay, but that's all I can see. I can't go beyond that. But that's not how God sees. When God sees, he sees a spirit first. He sees the soul and he sees the body. That's how God sees us. He doesn't look at the body. He doesn't even look at the soul first. He looks at the spirit first. But when we respond to God, when we respond to the living God, our response is the reverse. Our response is the reverse. That's what God demands from us. In Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, you will see God demands a response from us. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. First, he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Before God can do anything, he needs you to present. All of you are here today. Everyone is here. It's only because you made a choice to present your bodies today here in the house of God. There's no live streaming here. So you had to present your body. That is the first. Present your bodies not as a dead sacrifice, as a living sacrifice. So don't tune off. Be living. A living sacrifice every day. It's a misnomer because sacrifices are always dead. But God doesn't want dead sacrifices in the new covenant. He wants a living sacrifice, a daily offering of our bodies first for his will, for his purpose. It should be holy and acceptable. The sacrifice has to be holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. And the second thing then he asks is, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He wants our soul. Then he speaks to the soul. He says, then I want you to surrender. There are two things over here. First he says, do not be conformed to this world. There is a decision which we make. Constantly we make. I will not think like the world. I will not be like the world. I will make my choices. Until we make those choices, uh, because it all begins with that choice you make before God can speak and transform us. You cannot be neutral before God. Scripture will talk about all the sons of Judah, many, many princes of Judah being taken a thousand miles away from Jerusalem to Babylon as slaves. One young man, Scripture says, that's how his narrative begins. It says, Daniel purposed in his heart that he will not defile himself with anything that comes from the king's table. There is a purpose. There is a very marked decision he makes. It's a choice you make. That's the first thing he says. I will not be conformed to this Babylonian world. That's the first choice he makes. Unless you make that choice, your mind is not going to be renewed. 
It will not be reduced. The, the word of God will be like water on a duck's back. One of the reasons people, though they sit under the ministry of the word for years, their thinking never change is because they haven't made a decision. I will not. This decision will have to be followed up with actions. I will not. I will not be conformed to the pattern of this. The world has its pattern. The kingdom of God has its pattern. And you make a choice. I will not be conformed to the pattern of this world. And then you are open to the renewing of your mind. The word of God starts making sense. The word of God starts affecting your thinking and your pattern changes. Then you start understanding what is the will of God. It's progressive. When you first hear the will of God, it is good. But as you grow, it is acceptable. But when you reach the end, it is perfect. When you reach the level of understanding the will of God is perfect, usually your life is a total disaster. You will see Moses at the end of his life saying, Ascribe greatness to the Lord our God. All his ways are perfect. When he says that, he has lost everything. And even he is not going to be allowed into the, into the promised land. So you don't reach here unless this takes place. Not even, we will not even know what is the perfect will of God because God himself cannot reveal it to us because it takes progressive surrender to understand the ways of God. When Jesus surrendered on in the garden of Gethsemane for the next day he would be hanging on the cross. He said, let thy will be done and not mine. That was the perfect will of God. Perfect will of God. And the, the sad thing is that most people will not reach there because there is no progressive surrender. So remember, this is how we move in. We move by surrendering our body and our soul, our minds to the teaching of the word of God. And then God starts speaking to our spirit. And it is a living sacrifice. That's why Paul will say, I die daily. Today you may surrender, tomorrow morning when you would, you don't even have to wait till tomorrow morning on the way back from church. You will suddenly start struggling with surrender. In spite of hearing all of it, this battle begins. That's why it's a living sacrifice. But we learn from the Old Testament that if you want to offer a sacrifice in the Old Testament pattern, you always need an altar. You always need an altar. If there is a sacrifice, then definitely there is an altar. Today I am talking about personal revival. Okay? I'm not talking about corporate revival. I'm talking about personal revival. Like a body has many bones and a wall has many stones and an army has many soldiers. A body can be revived only as the individual members are revived. Revival has to become personal. Always it is not corporate. It's individual members have to be revived. So we each one has to personally commit to that process. That's why often revival is personal. Jesus committed himself daily to that process. The apostles committed themselves daily to that process. 
That's what Bible is talking about. Offer your body as a living sacrifice daily. And we will, we know the snippets we have seen from Jesus' life, how it's a daily process. We saw in the gospel according to Mark, uh, you see Jesus a full day's busy, busy ministry, tired, Probably is knocked out in the night. But Mark chapter 1 verse 35 says, Now in the morning have risen a long while before daylight. He went out and departed to a solitary place where he prayed. Life was defined by this. And this is the Son of God. Full, filled without measure the Holy Spirit. But there is a daily commitment. If there is not a daily process of surrendering at the altar in prayer, you do not hear from God what you need for that day. God has a specific day. That's what living in the spirit means. That is what walking in the spirit means. Jesus did not come to revive Judaism. No, not to give us another religion. He came to raise up a set of people who would walk in the spirit. But it is defined. There is a process through it. And you will always see the apostles, you will, they will say, teach us to pray, but you don't see them praying. Even on his darkest hour in the garden of Gethsemane, when he actually asked them to pray for him, they go to sleep. But after Pentecost, you don't see that. You will see their lives are changed because their prayer life changes. And you will see, in the next verses, you will see Simon and those who were with him search for him. They woke up later and they were looking for And when they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. Crowds have come back. The sick are there, the demon possessed are there, all come back. But Jesus' answer is, he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. Why? Why did he make a decision? Because he heard from his father. He heard very clearly, leave the crowds, go to the next town and preach. People will be offended. Crowds will be offended. But our job is not to please crowds. We serve them but at the Father's disposal. See, I always tell pastors, we are God's servants. We serve people. We are not people's servants. We are God's servants. The beneficiaries of our service are people. But we are always God's servants. And here you see, his entire ministry benefited only man, but he was always his Father's servant. And he was surrendered to the altar, therefore he could always hear Clearly, clearly. So we need that altar. We need that place where we, our prayer, our prayer life is defined. In the Old Testament, when it talks about altar, God was very clear about the altar. It says, if you make me an altar of stone, he said it should be either of earth or if you make of stone, you shall not build it of him stone. Just as you find in the nature. He said, pick it up as I made it. And make an altar. Don't cut it. Do not use your tool on it, for you have profaned it. Okay. Meaning, if you look into the word of God, whenever you do something for God, you need to be very sure it is done God's way. You don't bring flesh onto it. It is not acceptable. It doesn't matter how good your heart is. It doesn't make a difference to God. You cannot put your tool. You cannot bring flesh and reason and understanding all. You go back to the word of God and ask God, how do you want it done? How do you want it done? The altar 
has to be done the way God wants it done. That's why even when David brings the ark back, the ark has been sitting in a house for years and years. When David brings the ark back to Jerusalem with such pomp and glory and everything, what happens is judgment and Uzzah dies. Uzzah dies. Is anything wrong with David's heart? He loves God. His entire desire is to bring the ark to Jerusalem. But scripture says when it reached the threshing floor, the oxen stumbled, Uzzah stretched out the hand and he died. And he's afraid. Because the thing is that everything that he did in bringing the ark to Jerusalem was contrary to the written word of God. And it was not acceptable to God. Our hearts may be right with God. But our methods may be completely wrong. And therefore it will be profane. The first thing that happens when the sanctuary is begins in the wilderness is the high priest's two sons are struck dead. They are struck dead because scripture says they offered profane fire. They added something that of man to it. And God says, no, no, your altar, do not put anything of man over there. The altar is our heart. In the new covenant, the altar is our heart. And God looks into our heart. In 1 Kings chapter 18, when we know about Elijah on Mount Carmel, and he's trying to bring a revival, restoration into the kingdom, Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. See, all the people came near to him. And the first act, before you can have any move of God in restoring in Israel, the first thing he had to do that, he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. The altar was gone. Then he takes 12 stones and he starts repairing the altar. The first thing God says is, come back, return, come back, come back. The altars are broken down. There's going to be no restoration in any church, any home, any life, any nation, unless there is a coming back to God and the altar is repaired. Because it is on the altar of a prayer life will be defined. Because on the altar, remember, there has to be a sacrifice. Once you have made an altar, there has to be a sacrifice. On the altar is where your and my flesh is put to death. Unless our flesh is put to death, we will not hear from God in the spirit. The flesh has to die. In the new covenant, that is what it means. The flesh has to die. Jesus' life was marked by prayer and he had his prayer altar. It doesn't matter how he moved. The narrative always will say, early in the morning he arose and went to a solitary place. where he is not distracted by other voice and other demands of people. And you will see. The altar is there and he's praying. And his prayer life is interesting. In Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he came like us in this flesh, look at his prayer life. When he had offered a prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears. One of the reasons he went into solitary place early in the morning because he didn't want to disturb the rest of the people who were sleeping, who didn't have a prayer life. Because I believe if you were in the same place where Jesus was praying, you would hear him crying. You would hear him howling unto God. This was his prayer life. This marked his prayer life. 
with loud vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear sir this is his prayer altar there is only one place in the entire bible which gives us a peep into what his daily prayer life was during his 33 years or not the only verse in the entire bible we know he prays he prays he prays but how he prayed what is the nature of his prayer is actually seen over here but if you know you know by now but for those who are were not there when we looked at this look at it there is a contradiction over here he is crying he is weeping and there is tears all over and his prayer is to save him from death unto him who is able to save him from death and scripture says he was heard because of his godly fear did god hear scripture says god heard it but didn't he die didn't he die on the cross he died on the cross right but scripture says his father heard him so what is this death talking about there are two deaths jesus didn't go through this death because of his cry god rescued him from death there are two deaths one we die because we sin adam died because he sinned and we all died in adam because of sin Jesus never died because of sin never he died for sin and his entire prayer life is marked by this each day lord let me not sin save me from my flesh save me from my flesh his entire prayer life every day is mark is putting his flesh to death so that he doesn't sin against his father that is why scripture says he was tempted at all points we look at hebrews 4 i think it's 4 12 or 13 he said he was tempted at all points and he did not sin and will says wow i wish you know why he did not sin it's because this is how we prayed this is how we prayed This is how we prayed. He was not given any supernatural ability which we are denied. He came like us in the flesh. But he did not sin in the flesh because this was his prayer life. While if we look at our own lives, we go and see into our prayer closets, we look at our own prayers. Our prayer is not this. Most of our prayers is about our flesh, how to get the things which the flesh demands. But his prayers were the exact opposite. Lord, let me not walk in the flesh even a moment. Teach me how to walk in the spirit and live in the spirit and not sin against you. And he heard very clearly from the Father his purpose for each day. Each day. The only time there is a discord in his prayer life where the flesh comes. is in the garden of gethsemane where he actually starts moving into the flesh and he says take this cup away from me and that's when he starts sweating and sweating blood the sweat is a symbol of the curse of the fallen man in the garden of eden starts sweating immediately he reverts back to the spirit and says but not my will but your will be done That's the only time in the entire scripture in my life you see a disconnect between the will of Jesus in the flesh and the will of the Father. He comes back and says but not my will but your will be done. 
So he gives us the prayer. This is how you need to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And then he gives those things. Lead me not into temptation, deliver from me evil. We will see just two lines, but those two lines were defined in his life in this prayer. Lead me not into temptation, deliver me from evil. Let me not sin against you. And we learn from this. When people talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, if we have really received the power of the Holy Spirit, it will define our prayer life. Define our prayer life. And we hear clearer and clearer and clearer how to please you, Lord. How to please you. Our entire life will be consumed with one thing. How do we please this living God? So take a step of faith. Shut yourself in every day. If you don't even have a private place, shut yourself in the bathroom. You know, many, 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 many people, hostile situations, the only place they could pray out to God was in their bathrooms. They shut and they spend that five minutes, ten minutes crying out to God, saying, Lord, I surrender myself today into your hands. Shut. That's why you need a solitary place, a place away from the voices of all the world and the people. And when we offer our bodies as living sacrifices in prayer, two things will happen when we do it. One, flesh is killed or burnt. Okay, Flesh is killed. Okay, In the old covenant, in the altar, the flesh was burned. Our flesh is killed. Second, even as we kill our flesh, we offer our bodies. Offer our bodies. Romans 6 uh, 13 and 14 says, do not present the mem- your members as instruments of righteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead. Okay, you have offered your flesh to be burned, but you offer the members of your body as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. You're not under the law, you're under grace. The instruments of your body, your eyes, your ears, your tongue, starting with that, the instruments of your body you offer to God. It's only when the flesh is dead, God is able to use the instruments of your body. It's not just saying lying there on the altar. No, he wants the body. He wants the body. So even today, offer your ears, your eyes. Focus. Say, Lord, I offer the instruments of body as instruments of. The, the Hindi translation is interesting. It says, it actually says, dharmikta kya hatyar. Right, Eric? I saw where is, huh? Hatyar. Dharmikta. Means a weapon of righteousness. It's not just an instrument. The actual translation, regional language, it's a weapon of righteousness in the hands of God. That's what happens on the day of Pentecost. That same man who denied Jesus three times, his tongue becomes a weapon of righteousness. Because it's surrendered into the hands of God. And that's what God is talking about. Let the flesh die. And offer the instruments of your body as a living sacrifice. And go back to your workplaces tomorrow and see what God does. It becomes weapons in the hands of a righteous, a holy God to destroy powers of darkness. That's what God is talking about. And the New Testament pattern is very, very clear. The flesh has to die. That's why you have burnt offerings over there. That's the meaning of it. Like I said, the pattern is there in the Old Testament, the physical, the spiritual meaning we understand in the New Covenant. You see, Noah... We know about Noah, God's word to Noah, God, Noah obeys God, builds everything 
Exactly according to what God says, the prophecy was given to Enoch that when Melchizedek dies, the judgment will come. And God is a merciful God, full of mercy, doesn't want anybody to perish in any age. That's the only reason the oldest man in human history is Melchizedek. Sorry, not Melchizedek, Methuselah. Okay, Enoch's son, Methuselah. How many years? 969. Why did he live and live and live and live and live and live? The reason is not because he was a smart guy. It's because if he died, judgment will come. God in his mercy kept on extending his life. You do your maths. When he's 969 years, Noah is exactly 300 years old. Sorry, he's 600 years old. And judgment begins. Melchizedek dies. Noah's, sorry, Methuselah dies, Noah's in the ark, judgment begins. You read scripture carefully, the judgment was there for a hun- one whole year. When he's 601 years old, the first day of the first month, the door is open and Noah comes out into a new creation which has been cleansed by the waters of judgment. And he would think, what is the first thing that will happen? The first act of Noah, when he comes out of the ark into this creation that has been cleansed by the waters of judgment, is scripture says, Noah went out, his sons and his wife, sons, wives with him, every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, whatever creeps on the earth, according to families, went out of the ark. And what did Noah do? Noah built an altar to the Lord, took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings. So the first thing is a burnt offering. And scripture says, God smelled a soothing aroma. If you are sitting here today and you are offering your flesh to be dead, it is a soothing smell in the nostril of the living God. Every time flesh dies, God says, I smell it. I smell it. Every time flesh arises and is alive, God says, it's a stink in my nostrils. That's why God says, no flesh will ever glory in my presence. Flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. So there is types given, physical examples in the Old Testament, which we understand in principle, in spirit, what it means that every day, Lord, my flesh has to die. And when my flesh dies, and I choose to put my flesh on the altar and allow it to die, it is a pleasing aroma in your in your nostrils. So, in the same manner, when the new covenant begins on the day of Pentecost, what happens? Everybody who received the word of God goes through the waters of judgment. Our baptism is like Noah's are going through the water. Everybody goes through the waters of judgment. Everybody. That's what baptism actually means. You are judging your flesh. I am dead. The old man is dead. And the new man is alive. If the new man is alive, how do you know? They offer their bodies as living sacrifice steadfastly for what first? The apostles doctrine. Today can you get people to come seven days a week? I am willing to teach. Will you come? Will you come? They had no jobs, they had no salary, they had no insurance, they had no bank accounts, they had no health care, they had nothing. But they steadfastly came for the apostles' doctrine, for fellowship, for the breaking of bread and for prayer. Every day. 
Why? Because they had offered themselves as living sacrifices and they allowed the waters to judge their old man. We are not able to come because our old man is alive. And the old man fights this. Oh, if I, children will think, if I go and sit for the word for 30 minutes, how will I study? Study is for the old man, but not for the new man. Your subjects, all the stuff, 90% of the stuff we are doing is for the old man. The new man, God said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the things your old man needs, I will add. But we don't believe. We don't, they believe. They believe. They believed. We need to understand what it means spiritually, the old and the new covenant. Problem is, when the altar falters, the believer also falters. Your strength is directly proportional to your altar. At the altar, your self-life has to die and the word of God is exalted. The first thing that happens is their self-life dies and they exalt the word of God in their lives. And this doctrine will determine everything else. They fellowshiped earlier also, but now their fellowship is determined by the teaching. Their breaking of bread or judgment is determined by the teaching. Their prayers are determined by the word of God. They are exalting the word of God because self is dying. And the church has to come back to that. In the world there may be loss, but unless the church comes back to that, or at least some in the church comes back to that, there's going to be no revival. There's going to be no restoration. We have to come back to that. We have to come back to the altar. We have to come back to the cross. We have to die to the self. Have to die to the self. That's what Paul, that's why God used that man called Apostle Paul more than anybody else, because that's one man who understood how the kingdom of God operates. In Galatians 2.20, this is what it says. I have been crucified with Christ Jesus. It's no longer I, the old man who lived. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, I no longer live. I no longer live. It's he who lives. And in the another verse in Galatians 6.14, he says, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? By whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. If I boast, I will boast of my altar, that cross. Where? The world has died and I have died to the world. Telling honestly, our lives will be defined by these two things. The prayer life and our word life. Our word life and our prayer life. In First Kings chapter 18 verse 30 says, the altar was broken down. Why is Israel gone into apostasy? Why has Israel gone into idolatry? Why has people gone into apostasy? Why have homes gone into apostasy? Why have churches gone into apostasy? Why have Christian nations gone into idolatry? Simply because one thing, the altar has broken down. God will say in the book of Malachi, return to me and I will Return to you. That's the first call of Elijah. Come to me. God says, return to me and I will return to you. The first move is made by God. God sends his son. He draws us by his spirit. After that, every move you and I have to make first. Return to me, I will return to you. Draw near to me, James will say, and he will 
draw near to us. We have to make this move every day of drawing near to God. And the greatest structure, the greatest structure a human being can build in this life is an altar. It is not World Trade Center. It is not Burj Khalifa. It is not anything that man can build. It is a private, personal, spiritual altar where flesh dies and the word of God is exalted above everything else. And I will tell you about that structure. No terrorist can destroy that. No government can bring it down. It can be only torn down by neglect. There was an altar once in Israel, but it was broken down because of neglect. That's the only way that altar comes down. That's why God says, if my people were called by my name, it's not the promise, it's not for everybody, okay? That's promises only for the people who are called by his name. What is the first thing God says? Yes, not pray. Everybody prays, except the atheist. He prays when he is dying. Everybody prays. God doesn't say, but if my people are called by my name, pray. He says, if they humble themselves. Humble themselves. Because only the humble can really pray. Only the weak can really pray. Only the poor can really pray. Only the needy can really pray. Jesus was poor. He was humble. He was meek. And he was needy. And his life every day was defined by prayer. That's why he said, learn of me. I am meek and lowly. What is the first thing we learn of him is we look at his prayer life. The greatest sin of every man, every church, every nation is pride. The exact opposite of humility. And our pride is actually seen in our prayer life or lack of prayer life and lack of word life. We may not say it, but our actions actually tell, you know what, I can really manage without you. Really manage without you. Really manage without you. And God is humble. And the humble cry out to God and he upholds them. And I say 57 verse 15, this is what God says, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity and whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. And with him who has a contrite and there are only two places where God dwells. One is in the high and holy place with Ezekiel and all will say and see everybody covering their eyes and the glory and holy, holy. And there's another place where he dwells. He says, I dwell with those who has a broken and a humble spirit. Only two places where he actually dwells. Rest of the places he passes by. But he dwells only in two places. He says, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. That's what Jesus says always in his Have you notice? He says, my father has never left me. He's always with me. Because I always do those things that please him. That's why Paul is not upset. The whole church has abandoned me. His disciples has abandoned me. And he's all alone in court. He says, don't hold it against him. Because... He is with me. He is with me. 
Therefore, remember, the greatest sin of an individual or a church or a nation is pride. A lack of dependence, actual dependence upon God. The rest are all symptoms. Rest you see, we fight sin, we preach against sin about homosexuality and perversion and this one and that one. Those are all symptoms because of lack of humility and dependence upon God. Don't judge a disease by its symptoms. Go and see what the disease is. Be a spiritual pathologist or a radiologist. What is the disease that causes this? We talk about God judging Sodom and Gomorrah with fire. For homosexuality and perversion and all that. But that was only symptoms. What was the real disease in Ezekiel 16 and 49? God says, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride. First was this, they had pride. Two, they had fullness of food. And third, abundance of time, idleness. And then, absolutely no compassion for those who did not have. Terrible combination. Pride, plenty of supply, don't need to depend on anybody. Third, abundance of time in your hands, idleness. She won't strengthen those who are poor. And it manifested in various sins. But this is where it started. It starts with this starts with this. So remember, you and I may not have the symptoms, but we could be judged for the same disease. We may not have the symptoms of Sodom and Gomorrah. You might, we may feel good. Oh, thank God I am not like that people. But God says those were only symptoms. Your disease is the same. Your symptoms are different. But the disease is the same. The disease is the same. And therefore we judge. That's why the altar is so, so important. Because like I said, the greatest sin of an individual or a nation is pride. That's why God says, if my people humble themselves before praying, humble themselves. Through James will say, humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. And our humility is actually determined by these two things. How dependent am I on God's word? How dependent am I in my prayer life for God's strength? I need both. I need strength. That comes from my prayer life. I need God's word because without your word, I am dead. I am dead. My will, not your will. If I don't have your word, it is my will. That meaning I am living in the flesh. If I don't obey your word, then I am living in the flesh. If I obey your word, I am living in the spirit. I need to hear from you. And when these two things falter, flesh starts to overcome. We are no longer living in the spirit. We are not living, walking in the spirit. We are living a religious Christian life. Romans 13 and verse 14 scripture says, Put on what? The Lord Jesus Christ. Put him on. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Other places, Timothy, Ephesians, all will say, put off and put on. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh. If you don't put on Jesus Christ, 
We make provision for the flesh. If we make provision for the flesh, ultimately the flesh will destroy us or put us to shame. When Israel moved into the wilderness, we know what happened to them. They were attacked by whom? The Amalekites. Now we are all scholars in the word of God. We know Amalek spiritually stands for the flesh. Stands for the flesh. We are not defeated by the devil. We are not defeated by the world. Gates of hell cannot prevail over us. We are defeated by our flesh. For flesh is dead, the devil can do nothing, the world can do nothing. Has no appeal to us. That's what Jesus says about the devil. The ruler of this world has come. He found nothing. If your flesh is dead, what can the devil do? The devil can't do anything. There was a curse on the devil in the garden of Eden. The curse was that, what? You shall eat what? Dust all the days of your life. And then if there is something pronounced over each one of us, dust unto dust, you shall be. So what is his fodder? His fodder is my flesh. If my flesh is dead, he has nothing to eat. Nothing to eat. And Jesus never walked in the flesh. Never walked in the flesh. But he put to his flesh to death was defined by his prayer life. And the word came alive. Then he walked in the word. He walked in the spirit. And that is to the pattern to which we are called. God knows. God knows. And he has given these patterns in the Old and the New Testament for his people to walk, live at a daily dependence and growing in this. That our flesh is not growing, but the spirit is growing. Little by little by little by little, we are putting to death the flesh and allowing the spirit to live. Let me ask you this question. Noah was defeated by the devil, the world or flesh? Flesh. After 600 years, after this incredible building of the ark coming through judgment, he drinks wine, lies naked, curses a generation and dies. He was defeated by his flesh, not by the devil. Not by the world. Abraham was defeated by the world, the devil or the flesh? The flesh. Isaac was defeated by the world, the devil or the flesh? Moses was defeated by the devil, the world or the flesh? Flesh. Samson was defeated by the Philistines or his own flesh? King Saul was defeated by the Philistines or his own flesh? David was defeated by the Philistines, the devil, the world or the flesh? Or the flesh. You see the pattern is the same. Even Elijah. Was he defeated by the prophets of Baal and Jezebel or by his own flesh? His own flesh. John the Baptist, the greatest among the Old Testament prophets, was defeated by powers of darkness or by his flesh? By his flesh. That's why scripture says, make no provision for the flesh. And how did Jesus overcome? He put to death his flesh. And therefore the ruler of this world and the world could do nothing. Prisons cannot defeat us. Even death cannot defeat God's people. A man whose flesh is dead, what can prison do? Paul, we know, was put in prison. to the tactic of the devil. But his flesh was dead, so the prison could do nothing. Instead, he had a revival meeting in the prison. All the prisoners were set free. And the entire thing ends up with the baptism service. That is what happens when your flesh is dead. He was in prison so many years. You know what? You go through the Bible and see... The prison episodes. 
The devil shut him up in prison, saying, "This you are not going to preach anymore." God said, "He said, no problem. I will write. I'll write." Now imagine which was more powerful. If he had been out preaching, his generation would have heard. We don't know, or he was put in prison and his flesh was dead, and he wrote. And for two thousand years, billions have been edified because his flesh was dead. Things doesn't work in the spiritual realm as we think. That is why God leads us into the wilderness and the flesh fights it every day. We hate it. Wilderness is a place where the voices of the world ceases. Right now, this is a spiritual wilderness if the other voices have ceased. To come here, you have to leave a lot of places. Voices, other voices, other interests. It's not enough to physically leave. You also have to spiritually leave. Leave. Then only you will be able to actually hear. Otherwise, little ones, I know you're too small. You're falling asleep, but that's okay. Okay? Okay, okay. I'm not saying it's okay. You can learn. Jesus learned to listen when he was small. Okay, learn early. Okay, that's why God puts you into these places. Where the natural man hates the wilderness. All the little children over here. If you were to go back to your grace home and Auntie Elsa says tomorrow no school. You can play Monopoly till one. Nobody would be sleepy. Why? Because the natural man loves it. It's simple. It's, this is why these things have to be disciplined and we learn to discipline ours little by little by little. Even Jesus, he comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, is anointed. The next thing that is written, Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. It's a very nice, simple word, but KJV will say was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit. Into the wilderness. That is where he was tested. That was where he proved his flesh won't live. And every appeal of the devil was to the flesh. If you are the son of God, then you can make this stone. He said, no, it's written. I am the son of God. But it is written. If you are the son of God, showed him all the glory. The pride of life. That's what we want. Like pride of life. Glory is said, Just worship me, I'll give. He says, no, it is written. It's written. This is a few job, and now the Bible, the devil also quotes. It is written, but he only quotes half the words. He doesn't quote the full words. That's the problem. If we don't know the word and he quotes us the scripture, we'll say, hallelujah. <laughs> That's the problem. Jesus said, it is also written. Should be able to say, it is also written. Because that's how people get fooled. These preachers, like smooth talkers, come on TV and they will use one verse and say, it is written. You should be able to say, but it is also written. It doesn't tally. You have to interpret scripture with scripture. Don't bring culture here. Don't bring culture. My only issue with people, even godly people, is that whenever they want to justify something and they cannot find scripture, they will say culture. Corinthian church, uh, the women were told to cover their head because of, who told you? Who told you? When I read scripture, I don't look the encyclopedia. I try to find scripture from scripture. I don't look at secular history or what Corinth was. 
It's not my business. My business is to look into the word of God. We'll always see, whenever we want to justify our flesh in any area, when scripture is attacking the flesh, the flesh will say, but check, this is what this one said. We will not be able to point out scripture. Let scripture. Jesus never, ever, you look through his arguments, it was always scripture. And they asked about this, he will say, that was not the way in the beginning. Every time he quoted back from scripture, 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 scripture. He did not quote anybody else. He let scripture stand on its own. And scripture can stand on its own because it is the word of God. So the devil will appeal to the flesh. He knows through the world he doesn't come like this and appeal to the flesh. He appeals to the world because the flesh and the world are made for each other. The earth and its fullness belongs to the Lord. But this world system, the ruler is the devil. And they are made for each other, the flesh and the world. They are made for each other. That's why in the letter to Ephesians chapter 4, 27, scripture says, Don't give place to the devil. Understand. Very carefully. He's just waiting for a toehold in. Then like the camel, he will get in and take over the whole place. Don't give place to the devil. Don't. Because he appeals to the flesh. So we know about Israel's history. A real nice pattern is given. When Israel is coming into the wilderness, the Amalekites come and attack from the back. Because the weak and the stragglers symbol of the flesh that is weak, the Amalekites come and attack. And what does Moses do? In 17, scripture says, Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose some men, go out and fight with Amalek. You have to fight your flesh. Okay, You have to fight the flesh. Okay, Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. He says, you have to fight your flesh. Okay. Now the thing is that you cannot fight the flesh in the plane. The man of prayer will ascend up the hill. It's spiritual. Prayer is difficult. It is not easy. You have to climb. You have to climb. Our problem is we want to bring Jesus down. But God doesn't want to us him down. He wants us to come up. In Revelation 4, 1, the cry of the Spirit is this. Is it the next verse I gave you? Yeah? Yeah. I looked and the first voice which was heard like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here. We are forever trying to bring Jesus down. Jesus says, no. You come up here. The call of the Spirit is always, always that come up, come up, come up. Prayer will always fight the flesh and have to ascend. That's why people don't like praying. Because it is a battle, it's a real battle in the flesh. You have to fight your flesh, you have to beat your flesh down, then only actually cut through the flesh and the reason, the soul, before you will hit the Spirit and actually start praying. I'm not talking about in tongues. I'm not talking about that. It's very easy. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about really, really reaching in the spirit. You have to cut through the flesh. You try, otherwise go back and try. Immediately your phone will ring. Or somebody will call you. 
but suddenly your stomach starts growling and you feel hungry. You are not able because you have not trained your flesh to sit down, shut up, die. You are not in charge. It doesn't come overnight. This is something, this uh, prayer is a spiritual discipline. You have to ascend that hill. But we want to bring Jesus down. The cry of the father is, no, no. Understand patterns from the Bible. We have to ascend up that spiritual hill if we really want to contend in this prayer battle. We always want to bring Jesus down. The father says, look at Genesis chapter uh, 24. And the servant said to him, who? Eliezer, symbol of the Holy Spirit, tells to Abraham, symbol of the father, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me. Who is the woman? Rebecca or the church, believing church, to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, beware, you do not take my son back there. My son back. What if the girl doesn't want to come? The church doesn't want to come up. Shall we go down? God says, no, my son will not go. She comes up here. No. He says, no. We are forever trying to take Jesus to Rebecca. Instead, God is telling Rebecca, come to Jesus. That's why Paul will say in that letter to Corinthians, says, if anyone doesn't love Christ Jesus, anthema, let him be cursed. Come, Lord Jesus. I am ready. I am ready. I'm just waiting for the heaven's portals to open and see you coming. I'm ready to go. But we are forever trying, no, come down and dwell with us over here. He says, no, you come up and dwell with us here. You have to climb that hill. Start now. Young people, start now. Little children, start now. Start now. Look through scripture. Don't look at your age. If Samuel as a child could hear the voice of God, you can too. You can too. I will put nothing beyond the scripture. When mothers come to me and say, I'm carrying, I said, pray. Why? Because John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. You look at it, I believe. You can be. Because I won't put any human experience beyond scripture. Scripture says so. So there is a possibility. There is a possibility. So the thing is that we are waiting for our children to grow up. Are they growing in the flesh? Yeah. So why can't they grow in the spirit? Not because they don't believe, because you don't believe. We don't believe. God says, no, look here. Look here, it is possible. These things are possible. But the problem is the flesh gets so compromised. So compromised living in the world, looking at the world, loving the world and enjoying the world. It is not able. When Lot is finally pulled out of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's dragged out. Judgment is there. Judgment is just a few hours away. Sunrise, they're dragging the man, the wife and the girls out. And you know what they say in Genesis? As soon as they brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Don't look back. Two things were said. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere in the, flee to the mountains. Or you will be swept away. You know what that man said? Please. Sorry, I can't go up the mountain, please. It's a small town here in the plain. (laughs) Let me go over there. You know, even in the hour of judgment when it comes, suddenly there will be so many Christians who will realize, I don't have the strength to pray because I never prayed. Never prayed. I can't, I can't climb this mountain. It's too late. I can't. That's what he says. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere. Flee to the mountain. 
What does he say? But Lord said, no, my Lord, please. He's giving his last chance to this man. We know you are righteous because you don't sin. But you are not a guy who practices righteous because you never do anything to. You're living in Sodom, but you like Sodom. You won't participate in the sins of Sodom, but you like the world. You like the world. Now get out and go up with God. God will use you maybe like he used your uncle. He says, no, it's too much. Your servant has favor in your eyes. You have shown greatness, sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountain. This disaster will overtake me and I will die. See, here is a town. That's why I tell the children and I focus on the children. Because if you don't learn this now and practice it daily, as you grow older and older, your flesh will only get stronger and stronger. And disciplines are learned very, very hard. It's very hard to learn disciplines when you grow older. Because the flesh is not growing, growing younger. The flesh, if you are indulging in, only grows old. Now that thing, you will be a miserable Christian because you are hearing the truth. You know it is truth. But you realize, you know what? I am not able to do it because it will demand so much for from you to break the power of the flesh when you grow older. It will demand really 21 days of fasting, 40 days of fasting, shutting yourself in and says, Lord, but your flesh is going to fight all the way. Because your flesh is so strong by then. So these things are better learned when you are young as a discipline, learning to control your flesh. That's what we see over here with with him. And what does the scripture say about Abraham? No, what does it say about Abraham? Early next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked. Where is he? He had stood before the Father, before God, in a high place and interceded. And he's looking down. Judgment doesn't affect him at all. All that he saw doesn't affect him. Because he's not in the place. He's up in the high place. If you come every day from the high place and then go into the world, the world doesn't affect him. It doesn't affect him. Our problem is we are affected by the world. Affected by the world, is because we don't ascend up to the high place each day. And we go into the, like I say, what's the joke? Before the fall comes the mall. We are, we are unable. We are un- Why are people in debt? Because they got things which they don't need. They don't need. Scripture says you've got clothing on your back and food on your table, you should be content. But you are not content. And we tell God you are not fair. He says, I'm absolutely fair according to my word, not your word. I've taken care of you every day of your life. You've been clothed, you've been fed. No judgment upon him. And you know, the other side about him, about what God says, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. And he brought, you know why Lot was brought out? Because there was a man who was interceding. You know why we will be brought out? Scripture says many will come through the fire and fire alone. You know what? Because there will be men and women who climbed the hill and interceded for us. That's the only reason. Not because of us, because of others who climbed the hill. That's the only reason. 
You know why God sent two angels to get Lot out? Because Abraham was on the hill interceding. Only because of that. And the Bible is very clear about it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13 to 15, each one's work will become clear for that day will declare it. On that day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. See, every man's work in Noah's generation was revealed by water. Everybody had built. There were plenty of constructions in the plain. But one construction alone survived judgment because it was built exactly according to the word of God. Therefore, when judgment came, the waters came, that structure alone went higher and higher and higher when everything else sank. Okay. In the same way, a second judgment is coming. This will be by fire and fire will test one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet as through fire, like no lot, as through fire. What is the reason why the scripture explains? The next, do you not know you are the temple of God? Do you not know? Don't you know your body is the temple of God? You're not called to live by the flesh. You're called to live by the spirit. You are the temple of God. Your body is the temple of God. You are not called to live by the flesh. If any man lives by the flesh, all his work will be burned by fire. It will be destroyed. I told you about the pastor whose house was burned completely, fired. Everything was burned. He went through the ruins and he found the only thing that was left was his coffee mug. Everything has burned. The next Sunday he came to church and he told them, you know what? My house was burned down and the only thing that came through was the coffee mug. You know why? Because this is made of clay. It had gone once through the fire already. Therefore, the second fire could not. Every work that will survive the fire is where the flesh was put to death, burnt. And every work that came through where flesh was dead will not face the second judgment. Otherwise, we'll be saved because of Christ's work. But we will lose everything that was meant for us. Because we did not die to the flesh each day. That is why God says, offer yourself as daily as living sacrifice. So Moses will climb the hill. That's what Exodus 17.9 will say. Moses said, I will go to the top of the hill. But how will I go to the top of the hill? If you look through scripture, it's very clear. He says, I will stand upon the hill with the rod of God in my hand. In the Bible, you will see the rod of God stands for the authority that comes from God's word. You look in your mind's picture, there is this man standing on the hill with the word of God and the hand of intercession lifted towards hand. And scripture says, every time his hand came down, Amalek won. When your word comes down in your life and your prayer life comes down, the flesh will win. Every time the flesh will win. So if flesh is winning, just check your prayer life and check your word life. That's the reason it is winning. He didn't say, I will just climb up. He says, I will climb up with the rod of God in my hand. You go through the Bible. Through the Bible, you will see men and the rod in their hands. Whether it is Abraham, Isaac or Jacob. What Jacob's scripture will say in his old age, he will lean on his staff in his last. His strength is coming from the word of God and he will bless his children. We are here about David, about David overcoming Goliath. We will say he overcame with the sling and five stones. That's not the key. When he goes to the river to pick the stone, read scripture, he had his staff in his hand. 
That's where his authority came from. He was lifting the word of God above all his situations. He had the staff in his hands. That's what God is talking about. Look at the picture. It's not just prayer. It's prayer in faith. Prayer which is looking at the word of God and exalting the word of God above all your situations. Because I said, there are other people in other religions who pray more than us. Much more regularly. Much more devotedly. But there's no power. And our prayer also won't have power unless we have learned to lift the word of God. Learn to lift the word of God. That is the picture we say. He says, I will climb up. Can we stand? That's why Psalm 138 verse 2 says, I have exalted my word above all my name. He has exalted his word. You can stand in that high place in prayer, in intercession, lift up the word of God. Say, Lord, it is written. It is written. I believe. In verse 11, scripture will say, and so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. It's the same true about all of us. When we bring our hand down, flesh prevails. Flesh prevails. When we bring our hands down, raise our prayer life and our word life up, flesh will not prevail. And it has to be consistent, little by little by little by little by little. It has to be. And that's the victory you see in Joseph's life, in David's life, in Daniel's life. It's all the hidden side of it. Why were they victorious? So if we see the enemy gaining ground on our life, we just have to ask two questions. How is my word life? How is my prayer life? Because there are only two things God asks us to do constantly. Only two things he asks us to do constantly. What is that? One, Joshua 1.8. This book of law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate it when? Day and night. Day and night. Meditate upon my word day and night. Not dreaming dreams. Meditate upon my word day and night. Two things he has asked. One, meditate upon my word. Keep that in your, in your head. If you're constantly, you're not talking about reading. It's about meditating upon the word of God. Second thing he asks us to do, Ephesians 6.18. Praying always. With all prayer and supplication in the spirit. We know Ephesians 6. What is it talking about the previous verses? About putting on the arm. The armor is held together by this. You look at every piece of the armor. Whether it is belt or the breastplate or the, everything is the word of God. Everything is the word of God. What is the belt of truth? It is the word of God. What is the breastplate of righteousness? It is Jesus Christ who is the word of God. Everything of the armor is Jesus Christ or the word of God. It is held together by praying always with all prayer. And First Thessalonians chapter 5, the next one, pray without. Two things God has asked us to. Meditate upon my word day and night and pray without ceasing. This will define our life. We will see this throughout throughout the Bible. We can see this throughout the Bible, throughout. Like I said, David was a man from the wilderness. Man from the wilderness. That's why he saw differently from the rest of the people. He was in the wilderness. It's the wilderness that defines who we are. I'm not saying you look need to look for a forest. I'm talking about separating yourself from the crowd. 
Therefore, he heard differently. He saw differently. If we do not separate ourselves from the crowd, we will be defeated because we will not be able to hear the voice, the voice of God. He was a man from the wilderness and he was a man of prayer. Symbolically given. He tell King King Saul that I am able to face Goliath. I am able to fight him because he's got a hidden prayer life where he says, I have killed a lion and I have killed a bear. That's his private life. Unseen. Nobody had known about it. Nobody had seen about it. Your victories in the public life is connected with your victories in your prayer life. David was able to face Goliath because he had a private personal prayer life. Like I said, when he goes to fight Goliath, in 1 Samuel chapter 17 verse 14, what did he take in his hand? His staff. He knows very well he's not going to beat Goliath to death. He's going to use his sling. But where does his authority come from? From this. This is where our authority comes from. That's why he took it. Yet there are people like Judah who will give their authority for a one night stand. Their staff give up their authority of the word. What does Tamar ask for? Give me your staff. Then when things go wrong and he wants to put her to death, she holds him to his word by his staff. She said, you want to put me to death? You want to know who I am pregnant by? By this man whose staff this is. He says, she's more righteous than me. Understand how scripture works. Too much for you little ones. Okay, All that, one day it will make sense. Okay. That's what God is talking about. Okay, There is his word life and there is his prayer life. They have to come together. Otherwise, it won't have power. Power to change destinies of people, churches, and nations. In First Kings 17 and verse 1, we will see this. Elijah, the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew or rain these years except at my... You see that, man? Read that statement very carefully. Whom is he standing before? Before? There are two realities here. He's standing before the king of Israel, Ahab. But he's saying, I stand before the Lord God. And his word has become my word. We are one. The word of God has become my word. There will be no rain, no dew, until I open my mouth and speak it again. Nothing. Why? Because I stand before him. That is his word life. People ask, where is the God of Elijah? That's not the question. Where are the Elijahs of God? Did this happen overnight? No. If you read the Old Testament, we will not find this. But if you read the New Testament, we'll understand how did this man become like this. James will say in five, Elijah was a man just like us, temperamental depressed, all issues he had. Man just like us. What was different about him? He prayed honestly that it would not rain and it not rain on the land for that is hidden. 
So he has a hidden prayer life which is manifested by a public proclamation of the word. That's where his authority comes from. We see in Kings, before Ahab, we see him proclaiming the word of God as his word. But in James will reveal that he had a hidden. How long did he pray? We don't know. Because the first time Elijah is introduced to us, it is in 17.1. Elijah the Tishbite. Who is his father? Who is his mother? What is his background? Nobody knows. Just comes on and says, no rain. Meaning the rest of his life is hidden. That's his prayer life. That's his prayer life. With the word of God, the word of the servant have become one. That's what he's coming. That's the man who ascends up the mountain. Mount Carmel and stands before the people and says, come near me. Let's repair that altar that is in ruin, stone by stone. Like I said, prayer is hard work on the flesh. It is hard on pride, hard on pride, very difficult. How many of you want God to come near you? Others don't want? So sad. You want God to come near you? Let's look at scripture, what happens when he comes near. Okay, It's not a setup, but it's scripture. James chapter 4. Draw near to God and he will draw near. Now this is talk to believers. Not to Gentiles. Believers, Hebrew believers. Kosher eating believers. Cleanse your hands. You sinners. Purify your hearts. You double. How do, you, how do we become double minded? Sunday, we are in the church. Monday, we love the world. Not in the world, love the world. That's how we are double-minded. One foot in the kingdom, one foot in the world. Purify heart. Lament, mourn, weep. Let me tell you, if God has drawn near you or me, it will show in our prayer life we are mourning. Because we have been revealed as to how strong the flesh is in us and we are mourning. Mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's the reality when God grows closer and closer to us. There is a brokenness. You realize how strong your flesh is and how your life, my life, displeases God. That's the truth. That's what he's doing. Actually, that's what's happening on Mount Carmel. We learn this from patterns in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings chapter 18, then with stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold to. What does he do? He digs a trench. The question God is asking is, how deep is our repentance? Why is that God is not able to become lasting change in our lives? Because often our repentance, yours, mine, is very shallow. Very shallow. In the spirit, let me tell you, as it in the world, our pursuit is the proof of our desire. You know the importance of a thing by the price you are willing to pay for it. Jesus is very clear. God gave his only son because he loved us. So he says, I have defined how valuable you are to me. Now, we define how valuable he is to us by our pursuit. How we draw close to God 
That's what's happening there, verses 33 to 35. He put the wood in order. We have looked at all this in earlier days. Fill four water pots with water. Second time, third time, 12 water pots. Full. You see? 12. The time of famine. How many years is over now? Three and a half years. There is no rain. There is no dew in Israel. What is asking them to bring? Water. You think they came up the mountain with water? No. He said, go bring water. Is water precious? It is precious. Is water precious? That will show how much we desire God. How much we desire God. That's what scripture is talking about in Hebrews 5-7. If you saw Jesus altar each day different places, what do you say? The ground he sprayed was soaked with tears. That's how he decided his presence of his father with him constantly. Soaked with tears. And he was not praying for miracles. He was not praying for things to happen in his life. He was praying that his flesh would never manifest and he lose the presence of his father. That is what he was praying for, so that he would not die in the flesh. We have to see these things. Not that everybody will receive it, but even if one man receives it in the world, that is enough. Because God has always done things in history with one man or one woman. He never looks for crowds. Never. It's always one man, one person. That's why the wilderness is so important. That is why this brokenness is so important so that this is where God puts his burden on our hearts. Usually what we are trying in our prayer is trying to put our burden on his heart. He says, cast your burden at my feet. Leave it there, don't worry about it. But the question is, can God put his burden on our hearts? That's the burden. The father's burden on his heart. Son, if you sin, all will die. All will die. Son, if you sin, there is no salvation for mankind. So his entire cry, every prayer time is, Lord, keep me from sinning that they may not die. We always talk about Jesus who died for us. Right? Let me tell you the truth. Jesus was the only person who walked on earth where every second he lived for us. Because he had to live for us and not for himself. If he lived for himself, we will die. He lived for us. And he died to self. He not only died for us, he lived for us. That's why the next verses will say, we are saved by what? His obedience. Not just his death. We are saved by his obedience in his living and his obedience unto death. He not only died for us, he lived for us. That's why the saints all will sing, Jesus, the lover of my soul. Not just because he died for us, but also they realize he is one person who... Because what's the complaint in all relationships? You live for yourself. You have no time for me. You never talk to me. You You don't live for me. He says, look at me. I lived for you, I died for you. And even now I am forever living to make intercession for you. Why don't you come to me? Why don't you come to me? That's the reality of the kingdom. That's what he's talking about, Elijah is talking about. Bring 
bring that what is most precious in your sight, Israel. If your repentance is genuine, then bring it. Then it bring it. You're going to flood the altar with water. Meaning, you and I will flood the altar with our tears. Our repentance is so deep that even the trench will fill with tears. We'll always talk about a David, God saying, David, a man after my own heart, man after my own heart. And we have this skeptic, this man, you know what all he did? Have you read the Psalms? He said, I have soaked my pillows with tears and my bones are wasting away because I cannot hear you. God said, that is my boy. Read the psalm. Read Psalm 6. Read Psalm 32. Read David's prayer life. God says, you know what? I'm not looking at his sin. I'm looking at his brokenness. That man loved me. And he will always have an heir on that throne. And I will call my son the son of David. God is not looking at our sin. God is looking at our brokenness over sin. We are upset about the consequences of our sin. We are not upset about our sin. That's the difference. David was not bothered about the consequences of his sin. He was more worried about what sin was doing to God. That's where the brokenness comes from. That's what God is talking about. He's looking for people like that. When one man in a nation, one woman in a nation enters like that, and lifts the word of God, enters from the prayer closets and start praying and crying. You know what God does? He puts his burden into their hearts. That is the beginning of revival of a nation. Before Israel could come back to God, God needed an Elijah who would be broken before him. Then only revival comes. And if nations have to come back, to God before the end comes. God is looking for one man, one woman who will enter into that prayer closet and say, Lord, here I am. Break me. Put your burden on me. Put your burden on me. It will cost you everything. You may be standing alone. And I believe it was the same picture of Moses. Elijah was standing alone on that mountain before the altar. Drench it water. You know what he says? A God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I have done everything according to your word. I have done everything according to your word. Lord, now prove yourself. I have done everything that has happened on this mountain, O Lord, is according to your word. You told me I have done it. Now prove yourself. That's all we can do. We cannot bring fire into us. Into a home. We cannot bring fire into a church. We cannot bring fire into a nation. What we can do is do everything God has done. Stand apart and say, Lord, I have lifted your word above everything else now. Lord, prove yourself. Leave it to him. How he does. How he does. It's not a physical fire. It's a spiritual fire. How do you know a spiritual fire has hit a man, hit a family, hit a church? As soon as a fire falls, what do the people say? Yahweh is... God. And next thing, take the prophets of Baal to the valley, destroy them. You will start destroying sin in your life and the voices that prompt you to sin in your life, you'll cut them all off. That's how you know the fire of God has fallen on your life. That's how you will know. Otherwise, no fire has fallen. It's just superficial, profane fire. When the fire of God falls upon your life, you will cut off everything that sins and causes you to sin in your life. Because that's how you know it has come. That's the immediate reaction of the people. 
Every revival in human history, church history, you go back and real. Every time there was a move of the Holy Spirit, there was an immediate return to holiness. Bars shut down, theaters shut down, everything shut down because there were no more customers. Everything shut down. Whether it was in the Welsh revival or any revival, everything changed. Because the people immediately returned and cut out every voice that prompted them to sin. They cut it off. Because the fire of God has fallen. Flesh has been consumed. And the spirit is alive. That's what we need to cry out for these last days. That is the authenticity God is looking for. And it is not all God to do with numbers. It is God to do with people who will cast that fire. That's how nations change. And it doesn't matter how old you are. How old you are. Shut those voices. Go into your closets even if you are little. You know, you will hear as Samuel heard. Maybe familiar voice, the voice of your mother, voice of Eli, the priest. Maybe my voice. You know my voice very well. You will hear God speaking to you in my voice. Abigail, Abigail. That's how Samuel heard. He heard God speaking to him in Eli's voice and ran to him and said, Did you call me? He said, No, I didn't. Three times. Then Eli got it, says, Next time you hear, say, Your servant is here. God speaks. Prepare our children to hear from God. Don't put anything out of them. Prepare our children. Because scripture says, His spirit shall fall upon his old men and old women, young and old, all of them. Prepare. But it's not going to fall on people who are not separated. Who have withdrawn themselves from this world. We go to the world, we don't belong there. We shut our ears to the voices of the world. Shut your TVs off. Shut all your programs off. Shut the shopping off. Shut all these things off. We don't need all these. Those are voices. These are voices. As I close, we're 8.45, I know. But we came for a purpose. I'll tell you that story again. From the mountains... In New York, up there, upstate, there was this man who came from the mountains. His friend was in the city. They were both walking down the streets, busy street of New York. And the man stopped. And he said, the man from the mountains, I hear the sound of a cricket. Not the cricket, which we hear very loudly. The other cricket, the grasshopper. He says, I hear the sound of a cricket. The man said, no, New York City, you won't have a cricket. He says, I hear very clearly sound of a cricket. He said, where? He looked. There was this shop and there were these flower pots over there. He went behind the flower pot and he picked and said, I told you I heard the sound of a cricket. He said, how did you hear the sound of this cricket in the midst of all this noise and people and traffic and everything? He said, I am from the mountains. I am from the place where it is very quiet. My ears have been trained to hear those voices. And he said, you know what? Everybody hears. But they don't hear with their Ears. They're here with what is in their heart. I said, I will show you what people hear. He took a handful of coin and he dropped on the pavement. Everybody walking on the pavement stopped and looked back because that's what's ringing in our ears. Money, 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 money. How to make more, how to spend more. We hear with that. That's our problem. The voices. Everybody hears. But you don't hear with this. You hear with this. That's why David says, I will deposit this in my heart and I will hear your voice with me or my ears. That's what we teach our children. We teach your children. Learn. Better late than never. Learn. 
come back to god come back to the altar come back to the word of god god will use you mightily in your generation man shall we pray and we will also pray for the dear brethren they leave tonight early morning they will leave shall we stand up together father we just come to you lord we just come to you we just come to you we just come to you you alone have the words of life you are life when you told israel i said before you life and death blessing and curses choose life you also told them then choose life god is your life help us to choose you every day lord because you are our life outside you there is nothing that is living judgment has been passed over this world already help us to pass judgment over our flesh each day that our my spirits might love and hear from you each day i come in this congregation into thy hands your people little and old i pray you would bless them above all lord i pray true blessing spiritual blessing that they would cleanse their ears with your blood that they may hear you would anoint their eyes with salve that they may see and cleanse our lips with fire that when we speak it's with your authority pray lord everyone young and old will be a people who are set apart for god set apart for god and this hour we just commit our dear brothers sisters who came from far they were with us for a season and as they leave as a church we commit them into the your hands and we pray you would bless them and you would keep them and the greatest blessing oh lord a church can receive what you promised in the book of zachariah upon them and upon us that you will pour out the spirit of grace and of supplication that we will be a praying people a people who will be moved by the spirit of grace to stand in the gap you said in your word i look for one man who stand in the gap but i found none therefore you had to judge i pray father not one many many will rise from this congregation who will stand in the gap and your spirit will empower them and our brothers and sisters when they go back they will stand in the gap for that city and for that nation they will stand and you will put your burden on their shoulders and your strength on their shoulders and they will stand in their closets prayer closets they will be there oh father they will wet that altar with their tears they will lift up the word above what they see and they hear and they will see god bring forth a revival in that land even as we look for a harvest in this land of god that's all we cry for a harvest of souls oh lord we pray father in this nation the gospel will go forth and we pray in that nation that nation will come back to god that's our prayer oh god oh father we just lift your word when we look with this eyes we see it's all impossible but we looked up your word above all your situations for there is nothing impossible with god and there is nothing impossible with him or her who believes Thank you father even our children here we commit them into thy hands we pray you would bless them and you would keep them from the evil one you would protect them from the world 
and you would put pour in them your spirit that at a young age they will learn to walk with you lord thank you thank you father thank you as we go now home and our dear brethren cast the flight in the morning i pray your presence would be with them and with us too lord keep us close to you keep us close to you lord thank you thank you father thank you lord we praise you we worship you we glorify you lord thank you father for in jesus name we pray Amen. Amen.